Episode 51. These are your choices. Rethinking the Bible with Jack Pelham. Welcome to Rethinking the Bible. This is an audio podcast where we apply reality-based thinking to interpreting the Bible. Reality-based thinking is my name for a philosophy that seeks to make constant use of honesty, rationality, and responsibility in seeking out the reality of things while trying to avoid common errors. And for the record, I define reality as the state of things as they actually exist, as opposed to one's perceptions, beliefs, or wishes about them. And you should know, this is a serial podcast, so it's best if you start from episode one and work your way forward from there, because we lay some foundational principles up front, and you'll be lost later if you skip them now. Welcome back to the podcast. It's been a while since I've been on, as you probably know, and I have uh, still got designs on doing this weekly, but I'm in a transition period between uh, having retired from paintless dent repair and going into teaching in my own studio starting this fall. I hope to be teaching private music lessons uh, and perhaps some private speech lessons and such, but also teaching some of the same class material I was teaching before in the We Montana Great Room, uh, before we closed that in the spring of last year. And so I've been missing those things and been continuing to improve those ideas and wanting to teach those live. So I'll have a small studio of about nine people and uh, be able to take very small classes like that. So I'm pretty excited about that. It's been busy transition period and um, trying to decide what to go after first. So it's a bit of a fun time and maybe a little bit hectic at the same time. Anyway, today I wanted to get into uh, some things not terribly different from what we've talked about before, but I continue to think about, uh, to analyze the world that we're in, the lives that we have been set into here in this world, and looking at the big picture, what is God doing What's the plan? What's the point of this? What's supposed to happen ideally? How does it normally go? What should we expect? All this kind of thing. And I do think it comes down to us having choices to make while we are here. It's uh, very clear that there are choices to be made in Scripture. We could come up with many, many example passages to uh, press the matter and uh, to prove it somewhat. Uh, even down to the, you know, I put this before you today, choose life, you know, this sort of thing. Um, and it's just all over the place between light and darkness and life and death and sin and righteousness, good and evil. Uh, choices are all over the place in the scriptures. It's so obvious that it would take a really uninformed person to miss it. <laughs> so not that anyone would be that uninformed. But um, anyway, there are many who say we don't have any choice at all, which I find a very unfortunate and untenable position. So anyway, the title here is These Are Your Choices. 
I will be reading from a script. Um, as you know, sometimes I can't stand it. I have to get off script and say something that I forgot before or clarify something. Uh, but I'll be doing that and, uh, and we'll go from there. So let me just jump right in. Uh, these are your choices. Oh, and by the way, you can find uh, the script for this episode, uh, which I don't promise to follow exactly, but you can find it at RethinkingTheBible.com under the episode number 51. These are your choices. So here we go. When faced with a reality in which your spirit was created by God and will have to give an account for what you've done when your life is over, these are your choices, as it appears to me. Number one, embrace the situation and sincerely do your best to please God, learning as you go. And number two, reject the reality and live however you want, either and there's some, some sub-choices here. Number one uh, should be A, I suppose. Uh, forthrightly denouncing the reality in full as an atheist might. So no, there's no God. I don't like any of this. God didn't create anything. You know, all these kinds of things. Just fully renounce the idea. Uh, number two, another way of rejecting the reality is being sloppy about some of the details of what God wants and pretending that sloppiness is okay. Now, sloppiness is certainly easy for us to do. Uh, we can do it by mistake. We can sort of kind of do it on purpose. That is, we know we're sloppy, but we're not fixing ourselves. And then the number three choice here for how to reject the reality is deliberately twisting some of the details into something you like better, and then pretending you're devoted to God as you do it. And I wrote a note here, think about it. The being sloppy is an example of twisting the details. That is, we know or should know from Scripture that we ought to be excellent in how we think through things. And so if we're living a life of sloppiness and yet pretending that we're okay with God while we're doing it, well, we're deliberately twisting. Uh, we know or should know, and uh, we need to cut that out. Right? So these three choices, either we can, or two choices really, Number one, we can embrace the situation and sincerely do our best to please God, learning as we go. Or number two, we can reject the reality of the life we've been set in and live however we want, uh, however we want to spend that. So in other words, you can live your life either, number one, really listening to God, or number two, not really listening to God. Or in other words, still, you can live your life either Number one, trying to please God, or number two, trying to please yourself. And if you're into the choices I've highlighted in orange above, uh, your choices seem to be either this. Now, let me tell you, I've highlighted this, these all these number two options in orange. So that's rejecting the reality, live however you want, uh, not really listening to God, and trying to please yourself rather than God. These I've highlighted. So I've said, if you're into the choices I've highlighted in orange, your choices seem to be either, number one, to go it alone, you know, to live this life by yourself alone, or number two, to enlist the help of any of a great many organizations and opportunists who are ready and willing to help you feel good about doing less than your best to please God. Let me read that one again. The number two is, to enlist the help of any of a great many organizations and opportunists 
who are ready and willing to help you feel good about doing less than your best to please God. And if you join an organization, there will be some issues with what they practice and teach. And when these issues become apparent, assuming they won't correct themselves, your choices will be either, one, to stand up for what's right, or two, to stay in the organization. And I have two sub-items on number two. You can stay in the organization either. 2.1, then, I guess, was, is making your own judgment that staying is more important than pleasing God. Or 2.2, twisting the matter in your own head and pretending that God thinks it's more important for you to stay in the organization than to set the matter right. I had a preacher tell me adamantly once that, quote, being unified, and by which he meant with the church, is more important than being right, end quote. I had another tell me that if I couldn't be quiet about the church issues I had been wanting to discuss, I would have to leave the church. I had yet another chide me in a closing prayer, uh, asking, or chide me about asking questions that were, quote, merely interesting and not of core importance, end quote. We've certainly talked about that one here before. Also about the unity thing, too, I'm sure. Uh, I had yet another chide me uh, for not belonging to a church because, quote, uh, we all need accountability, end quote. Ironically, the reason I wouldn't join his church is that I thought that they were not being accountable to God on several points of Scripture. It seems he was deeming accountability to church as more important than accountability to the teachings of the Scriptures. So it was a matter matter of priorities there, sort of picking and choosing, I thought, is what he was doing. And so I go on. If you care about really pleasing God and you belong to a church, it is inescapable that issues will arise in which the church is wrong in belief or practice. And if you are right about the issue and don't cower about it, it's going to put the church in the position of either repenting or deciding to please itself and to displease God. There are no other choices. And this puts you in the position of having to choose which is your master the church, or God. So I'm going to quote here from Matthew 6.24. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And that's Jesus in Matthew 6.24. These are your two choices, according to Jesus. Number one, hate the one and love the other, or number two, be devoted to the one and despise the other. And if you don't like either of these two choices, you can pretend that pretending to do both is a viable option. This, of course, will offend God, who will eventually tell you face to face, even though you already knew better because you've read this and many other passages of Scripture. So these two options were to hate the one and love the other, or to be devoted to the one and despise the other. Well, you can pretend that you're sort of doing something of both that's not so bad. And that is uh, a third option where there's not really a third option because it's just make-believe. Does that make sense? So it's, it's not a real option. I mean, well, yeah, you can make-believe, but you're not really 
you're not really doing anything when you're pretending to be on a rocket ship flying to the moon. A kid may spend a long time doing that, but he's not really traveling anywhere, right? And so we can pretend to be getting somewhere spiritually when we're doing either, number one, uh, hating the one and loving the other, or being devoted to the one and despising the other. Uh, in reality, we're going to be doing one of those two things, says Jesus. But we can pretend that, those, no, no, it's okay. Somehow in the middle, there's a there's a good way, right? So I go on. I have certainly seen some churches who trade on the idea that they're more serious about getting things right than are the other churches. I've uh, been a member of some of those myself and um, quite, uh, quite regret it. I understand how I got into it. And uh, I also understand how I got out. Uh, but but anyway, let me get back to here. I've been a member of uh, some churches who are more serious about it than others in, in their banter. They talk about wanting to get things right. And they'll criticize other churches for being sloppy. And, and with good reason. There's plenty of sloppiness out there. But I have not yet found one, uh, a church, that isn't quite at home adopting certain beliefs and practices that seem quite notably inconsistent with the scriptures in various ways. Nor have I seen one that leaves its members free to dissent on those particular points of practice and belief. In the ones I've seen, the institution sets itself up between God and the member, who is supposed to be pleasing God primarily by being a member, it would seem. For seldom does anything arise that seems to trump the supposed importance of membership. And they will find you a Bible verse for that, even if they can't be troubled to find you a verse for something else. So that is, if you say, oh no, I, I don't need to be a member here and be accountable. Oh, they'll go find you, you know, do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing or something like that. They'll find you a verse, uh, even though they won't go find a verse for other things that they want to defend. So I go on, you have to decide, you have to choose whether to believe all this pleases God or not. As for me, I think it angers him considerably and that we have more than enough information in the Bible by which to know better. All this pretending people do is an abuse of the faculty of imagination that God gave us. Our choices are these. Number one, to follow God. Number two, to follow Satan. Or number three, to pretend that we are following God when we are not, which is just another form of number two, following the thinking of Satan. So let's talk about Adam and Eve. Regarding this pretending, let's look at what Satan did when he wanted to draw Adam and Eve away. They had been told not to eat that certain fruit. And when Satan encourages Eve to do it anyway, uh, does he say the following? I know you're not supposed to eat it, but what I'm suggesting is that you should completely reject God and everything he says and swear off believing in God forever. Is that what he says? No, he says this. You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And that's Genesis 3, 
verse 4 and 5. He doesn't suggest that she totally rejects God, nor does he suggest that she completely devote herself to pleasing God to the best of her ability. Those are my number one and two choices from before. Rather, he seems uh, to model this option of searching for another way, a third way, or finding a way that might not sound perfect, but certainly doesn't sound too bad either. He seems to be suggesting that something good will be the outcome of it. That this is indeed a good and desirable choice that God will get what he wants from it, by which I mean that they will end up knowing good and evil. And perhaps surprisingly, I do think that not only did God fully expect them to sin that day and that it was his plan to let it happen, but that the letting it happen was the very plan for the day. I think that through this episode, God was demonstrating that man was not created ready to live with God and that even this fairly simple order of you can eat all this, but don't eat that. Uh, even in that, man was not yet mature enough to grasp the importance of all of that. And Adam and Eve would indeed learn it before they died, I believe. And that's the point of all our lives, to learn to follow God well while we are here, in the small things and in the big things. And Satan seems to suggest or imply to Eve that they can disregard God in this one little thing and achieve something of even greater importance as a result. Well, ironically, they did learn quite a lesson about good and evil that day, or I should say they began to learn it that day. No, God did not ever want them to sin, but he had not created them incapable of it. Rather, they had the faculty of choice, by design, mind you, and this was the day when they would first get their hands dirty, learning that disobedience to God has consequences. And for the record, it was also the end of that first period of their lives in which God had let them see at least some of the glory of what it would be like to live in his presence in some way, however it was that things worked there in the garden. They had seen it for themselves and lived in it for a while, however long that was. And while we're on that question, let me mention briefly that the Bible's 66 books don't speak to the question of how long they were there in the garden before they sinned, though a few of the ancient Near Eastern extra-biblical books do mention it. They do disagree, however, so make of it what you will. The Book of Jubilees and the Life of Adam and Eve, that is the Latin version, uh, have Adam and Eve in the garden for seven years before they sinned. Meanwhile, the first book of Adam and Eve uh, says that they did not keep the command for a day. And then the book of the secrets of Enoch or the second Enoch says that they were five and a half hours in the garden. Just so you know, I've documented these four sources in a post on my blog at jackpelham.com. And there's a link here in these um, in the script but it also, um, you can find it by searching how long were Adam and Eve in the garden. But let's get back on track here. The nature of the temptation Satan rolled out that day was this. He did not tell them to go all out to obey and please God. 
nor did he tell them to go all out to disobey and displease God. Rather, he suggested an alternative that involved some disobedience regarding a simple command that was on the record and seemed to suggest that some good would come of it, that is, of that disobedience. Some good that would please God even, something that would turn out okay in the end. Well, it did turn out okay in the distant end, but not before it had cost the life of Jesus to make it right. So there's that. (laughs) And I'm not sure I grasp all of this well in my head just yet. There may be, in fact, some manner of paradox in all this, that defying the simple command not to eat the fruit was the first instance of sin that had been inevitable all along, and would become the first big focal moment in the long story of the sin of humankind. That is, it had to start somewhere, and this was the day. So they had a command not to do it, but God knew, and here's the paradox, but God knew that even though they did not yet have a mature and responsible spiritual view of things, they would indeed fool around and find out. So in other words, he's told them don't do it, but The very doing it is the learning of the very lesson they needed to learn. I hope that makes sense. This is the paradox that I have in mind. And yes, Satan had indeed lied in the part where he had said they would not surely die. So he did, in fact, deceive Eve with that lie in hopes of getting her to eat, and he was condemned for it. Uh, Even if God did have a plan to make things right again with Adam and Eve, and with all the rest of us who would sin on our own watch. So yeah, there's a plan for this. Yes, but Satan did lie. He was condemned for the lie. And yet a lot of what he said was true. And it did happen the way he said. So it's quite a complicated story, I think. It's not quite so easily grasped as we might wish. It requires some deep thinking. And I've been working on it for years, and I'm still not convinced I've got it, for whatever that might be worth to you. But let's not miss the fact that Satan seems to have presented the first occurrence of the it's for a good cause temptation. That is, if you eat this, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God knowing good and evil. Do you see the good cause in that? Well, that may have been good after all. It seems it was supposed to happen, even though it happened predicated upon their first sin and thus became the greater part of the saga of mankind, that he had before him from the very beginning the choice between following what God says and following anything else. And it appears to me that this was the first instance of mankind abusing his faculty of imagination that God gave him, imagining a way forward through this cognitive dissonance of don't eat and go ahead, it's okay. You see the two sides? Don't eat that. And no, you can eat it. It'll be okay somehow, right? Well, neither Adam nor Eve said, wait, stop the presses. I've got two conflicting thoughts running in my head at once, both what I shouldn't eat and that eating it would actually do bring about a good result. So I'd better stop right now and get this decided before I do anything else. They didn't do that. Rather, they seemed to give in to what their immediate company was saying and doing. It had started with Satan's suggestions, 
But then Eve got the idea in her own head and became something of an accomplice in the willingness to commit the crime. And Adam, seeing Eve eat, was also enticed and became a member of the conspiracy too. And not once, as far as we're told, did it occur to them that they were ever conspiring together against God. Now, Satan, I I would imagine Satan knew what he was doing. Uh, But we don't have any reason to think that Adam and Eve necessarily knew. It's difficult for us to see through this, to see what actually completely was going on in their minds. I go on. We ourselves are very good at the so-called justifying of things. And I put that word in quotes. Um, It's almost always abused. Uh, Justifying, justification. Uh, Okay, I'm off the script. Let me get back on. Uh, We know enough that we might have told ourselves, well, it's quite a small command and of little importance as there is so much fruit here. But we have little evidence as to whether Adam and Eve would have yet known how to do that kind of rationalizing, what we call that. Although this may be exactly what we're being shown when the account tells us this. And so here's Genesis 3, 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. I'm not sure we can be certain whether this is the author running down the list of all the relevant factors that were in play or whether this was a list that Eve was using to, quote, justify, end quote, the disobedience in her own mind. I could see it either way. And I'll add this in that, you know, we're not told explicitly by the author which it is. And so I do hesitate to suppose these are the thoughts that Eve was having in any sort of justifying way. They might have been playing on her mind, but whether she was making a case for it, mm, that's a bit much for me to assume. It may well be true, but we just don't have as much evidence as I would feel comfortable turning into a conclusion like that. So I go on. Certainly in our case, it can go something quite like this. Here's a little little drama I made up here, a little thing somebody might say to himself. Hmm, while it's true that I know I shouldn't eat donuts, they are such tasty food and look so beautiful. And it's always so fun to eat them with others, especially if there's milk or coffee at least. And more than that, I will really be serving my friends to give them donuts too. So my little bullet list of five points... Uh, Number one, they're tasty, uh, beautiful, good for fellowship, better with milk or coffee, and I'll be providing a valuable service. And suddenly eating the donuts doesn't sound like just something that's not a huge infraction of what's right and proper, but something that is right and proper in at least five ways. And we even have two words of this sort of mental work we do uh, from getting getting from point A of don't eat that to point B of eating that could actually be good. <clears throat> Those words are justify or justification and rationalize or rationalization. But they are neither just nor rational. 
They're not proper thinking, and they're not based in reality. They are abuses of the imagination and of the intellect. And even so, few humans ever seem to notice that these two words are improperly used most of the time. Not always, but most of the time. So we continue to use them, thinking ourselves okay in doing so. We're not thinking that we're in utter rebellion, and we ignore the question of whether we are in utter obedience. Rather, we try to satisfy ourselves that this is good enough, whatever it is that we're wanting to do. So we come up with reasons by which to convince ourselves and those around us, and away we go. And God expects us to learn what's wrong with this. Through the teachings of Scripture and through the hard lessons of cause and effect, He expects us to learn our lessons and to cut it out. But do we? Well, we have two choices. Number one, cut it out and live eternally with God. Or number two, don't cut it out and don't live eternally with God. Or, here again, there's that number three. It's the pretending one. And notice how this works. Number three, pretend that there's a way to don't cut it out and still live eternally with God. And I've done some highlighting here too. I don't know if this will translate well uh, in audio. But the first two options, cut it out and live eternally with God, uh, that was all number one. The cut it out part's in green, the live eternally with God that's in green, two nice sounding, you know, positive things that we would want. Uh, The don't cut it out, that's an orange, sort of a negative-ish color maybe. And then don't live eternally with God, that also was in this negative color. So the number one option, you got two green things, cut it out and live eternally with God. And then the number two has two negative things in orange, but the number three has one of each. And that's the make-believe way. It's the pretend way. It says there's a way to don't cut it out and a way to live eternally with God still at the same time. And so this is the unreality of this. This is the, um, the, the cheating answer. This is what comes from the cognitive dissonance. I can don't cut it out, but I know that's bad. Yeah, but you can still do it and still live eternally with God. And we know that's good, right? This is that, that kind of twisted thinking that we do. So I go on. Note that the first choice has two good things. The second choice has two bad things. And the third choice pretends that a bad thing can result in a good thing. And what's wrong with this? Well, God presents no such option in Scripture. That's what's wrong with it. People are always called to repent of their sins. Always. And the following idea is flatly rejected in Scripture. And I'm going to quote Paul here from Romans 3, verse 8. Why not say, as some are slanderously uh, claiming that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is just. Now, that's a really tricky quote to pick up by itself out of the context. But he's saying that some people are going around saying that Paul and uh, his team or Paul and the apostles were saying, let's do evil that good may result. And this is some grace argument you know, and so, which I don't want to go too deeply into it, but he said the people who are saying this, you know, it's false. 
And he says, their condemnation is just, or it is deserved. So these are very strong words against this idea that let's just do bad so good stuff will happen as a result of it. And Paul is speaking very strongly to condemn that, that kind of um, twisted thinking about things. So I go on. We don't know how deep Adam and Eve's convictions were about the prospect of disobeying God that day. It would appear that they weren't deep at all, for we're not shown any great wrestling over the question of what to do. Rather, it seems they went along rather easily with that temptation. And I did want to say here that they did know God had said, don't do it. That's very clear in the record. It would be hard to dispute that. So they had the knowledge, yeah, but how much personal conviction did they have? How resolute were they about it? How much understanding of the importance of this did they have? That's what I'm getting at. This is hard for us to know. And so I go on. Had Satan not presented a lying justification, that's in quotes, or rationalization, that's in quotes, it would be interesting to see what would have played out. But we only have the story we have, so we'll just not know. Had he not modeled this for Eve, given her some uh, supposed reasons for this being good, would she have picked up on that and run with it, like it appears she might have done? Don't know. It's very interesting. Maybe we can ask one day. But going on, I do think it's quite a substantial point, however, that to this day, this is the very model of cheating justification and cheating rationalization that we tend to do. We don't want it to just be a stark decision to do what we know we ought not to do. No, we seem to find it satisfying to have reasons for it. And even our own cognitive scientists observe this trait strongly in play today. Dan Ariely, in his most enlightening and useful book, The Honest Truth About Dishonesty, and there's a link here uh, to the Amazon book if you come to uh, the post at rethinkingthebible.com. Anyway, in this book, The Honest Truth About Dishonesty, he points out that people seem all the more likely to lie, cheat, or steal when they can cite support for it, such as, well, it's for a good cause, or, well, it's for the children, which, of course, is many would say is the ultimate good cause or something like that. Or even, uh, well, the guy had it coming because he had done me wrong. Right? So lying, cheating, or stealing against the guy, well, it's justified, in quotes, because, uh, well, he had done me wrong. Right? So this idea that we, it really greases the skids of injustice if we think that there's a good cause for it. But again, I see this as an abuse of our faculties of imagination and of reason. And I think it makes us deserving of the same rebuke Jesus gave some Pharisees when they were abusing their own minds one time. He said, Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. And that's in John seven twenty four. And we've talked about this passage many times. It is so fundamental to the whole theme of this podcast of rethinking the Bible. What kind of thinking do we do? What do we do with our minds? 
the very first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. And this is constantly under attack today. There's such an anti-intellectual movement going on in so many churches that love your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Heart, okay, we, we kind of love that idea. Uh, and it can be ethereal for us and uh, chimerical when we need it to be uh, fuzzy and foggy and blurry. We don't have to nail it down. But mind, oh no, we don't want that. We don't want people actually thinking and knowing how to make distinctions between ideas and things like this because life is easier when it's fuzzy, <laughs> when we can get away with stuff and pretend that there's, well, we don't know because it's not clear, you know, this sort of thing. And the heart, mind, the soul, love God with all your soul. Well, that's a little harder to tell, but that mind thing, we don't like that. And then strength. There's an attack against strength today. There's, in fact, the very, I've mentioned one already, the idea that, no, we don't have free will. Mm -mm. We have no agency. We cannot do our own decision-making. We cannot act on our own behalf. Nope. It's all pre-programmed somehow. You know, that idea is actually quite ridiculous and quite contrary to the evidence, and yet it is very popular. I wish I knew what percentage of people who claim Jesus uh, believe that, but it's too high, whatever it is, I can tell you that. And so this, this attack against loving God with your mind and with your strength, which they'll say you don't even have that. And of course, how do you love God with your mind if you have no agency, if you have no free will, right? It just makes zero sense, and yet it's such a popular belief because it absolves man of his responsibility for himself, which is the very point of the whole existence of man that he gets to choose whether to be responsible or not. I'm off the script here. I'm at the end of the script uh, so this has been bothering me for the longest time, and it becomes clearer and clearer in my mind. Like I said before in this podcast, if you don't want to just give yourself over wholly to God and be uh, authentic in your pursuit of pleasing him and learning how, then you have one other choice, and that is to displease God. And you can pretend that whatever else you're doing is not that other choice. This is Cain giving an offering that was apparently not wholehearted, going through the motions. This is the constant up and down history of the nation of Israel and the Old Testament stories. Just constant turmoil sometimes good for a moment and then bad and really bad for a time, for a long time, just looking for the occasional hero who would come along and do things right for a change, and then it was back to the badness. This is the story, I think, that's quite on purpose, that this is what mankind tends to be like, but God's not looking for the salvation of all mankind. He's looking for the salvation of those who seek after him, who want to do what is right in his eyes and not in their own. That's the point. We've talked about this over and over and over again. And um, it will be the eternally necessary message. 
it's already in the Bible. The reason people need to be reminded about it is they don't read the Bible well or they don't think well when they do read it. And so uh, what a mess we are in. You know, I know I've talked about dysfunctional Christianity. I remember that episode title. I don't have these memorized, uh, the uh, episode numbers. I should keep a list in front of me, I suppose, for this very purpose. But uh, to me, this is so troubling. You can talk and talk and talk, and hardly anybody listens. There's hardly ever any feedback. And yet I still keep studying. It becomes clearer and clearer to me. And I see that um, the most of the churches, if you look together as a class of institutions, what they do is they run interference for all of this. And they help people find some place of make-believe where they can be uh, thinking themselves to be doing well with God while they are, in fact, neglecting uh, to learn uh, distinctions between true and false and, and uh, good and bad, and whether neglecting to do good things they know they should do, and whether neglecting to repent of bad things they know they should quit doing. And that is what so many of the churches are. Uh, and uh, this is going to make people really mad, but that's just, that's it. That's what they do. You can stand back and watch for a decade and watch the same church do the same things again and again and again. And no matter how many conflicts come up, never change their ways, never change their view, never change their policy, never change their doctrine. Uh, it's just incorrigible. And this is how it is. This is that that pretend view. It's we defy you, God, but we still don't want to say that. And so let's pretend. You know, This is Cain who's willing to murder his brother, but still wants to bring a sacrifice to God. Like those two acts go together. He is himself a walking contradiction. He is the epitome of cognitive dissonance, two competing ideas in the mind at one time. And yet that's his thing. And so he becomes the poster child for all of humanity uh, of those people who needed to be wiped off of the earth. And this, this is God's language. All right, so he's going to get rid of them. It's the point. The blood of Abel cries out from the ground for vengeance against Cain and his seed. And this is, you know, this is not literal. This is against people like Cain in this spiritual way. Uh, that's the whole theme of the Bible. And yet so many churches miss it. How could you miss that? Because it's everywhere in there. How could you miss it? Because you don't want to see it. That's how. You don't want to obey. You don't want to go wholeheartedly after it. You're going to cheat and fake it and pretend as if you are clever enough to deceive God. Ananias and Sapphira thought they were clever enough to deceive God, or either they didn't realize, really, that the apostles were inspired men who would know when they were being lied to. And so they lied about their contribution, and uh, then they were surprised, oh, we know you lied and you're dead, right? That's how the story goes, and that is not happening today. If it were, there would be a great many very upset, very worried, very frantic uh, churchgoers. But 
this kind of lying, cheating, and stealing goes on so much, and it's not challenged. It is not stood up against. It's not corrected. It's not demanded. The repentance is not demanded, that is. Uh, people can keep doing it with impunity for years and years in church. And then if they ever get called to justice, well, that's in the next scene after the curtain has dropped here and we don't get to see the talk between them and God. And so you have to take that on faith that it's going to happen or not. You can try to pretend your way around it and pretend that, no, no, that, no, God would be gracious to them and, you know, so forth and so on. So these are the choices. You can either do right, you can do wrong, or you can pretend that there's more than two choices. That's pretty much it. I feel a bit adamant about this today, like in the grouchy sense, I think because there's so much constant pushback against any talk of righteousness. There's always somebody wanting to pour water on it and douse it to put it out. And this is wickedness. And it is very common. And if you don't know where to find it, you can find it in a church. I'm not saying that I know every church is like this, but boy, I know a bunch are like this. And they might try to um, put lipstick on that pig, but it's pretty ugly. And this is what goes on. And so at this point, I'm beating a dead horse to talk any more about it. Um, <laughs> I guess I do feel quite adamant and, and a little bit uh, sour is not exactly the right word, but um, fierce, maybe severe or something. I don't know. Uh, anyway, this troubles me greatly. I think it troubles God greatly. And uh, if you're not troubled as a Christian by this, I would have deep concern about uh, what kind of thinking you're doing and whether you're really judging correctly or are you just uh, judging by the appearances that you create to tell your own brain why this would be a good idea when it's actually not. So anyway, that is the, um, the lesson for today. And uh, it's funny, this one's not so informative as it is corrective, if that makes sense. So I do feel a bit unsettled, like I don't normally at the end of these. But hey, it is what it is. And some of you, of course, will hate that saying. Uh, a lot of people do. But, you know, it is what it is. So thanks for joining in. Hello, this is Jack Pelham, the host of Rethinking the Bible. I've decided to start adding this important but short epilogue to every episode. I want you to know that I don't think I have any commission or assignment from God, as far as I know, except to live a godly life. I'm not a prophet or an apostle, and I don't work for any church, nor am I sponsored by any. I'm a guy trying to use his mind best he can to understand the Bible honestly, rationally, and responsibly. I've figured out that I'll never get it all figured out, even if I live to be 120 years old, but that doesn't mean I can't keep learning some very valuable things as I go. I'm trying to understand how it all fits together, and I certainly cannot explain the whole thing without making mistakes. What I've decided to do here on the podcast is to focus on some parts of it that I think are pretty important and that seem to be commonly misunderstood by many churches. 
I present these episodes for your consideration, therefore. I'm convinced that there's substantial value in mulling the scriptures over. So if I've got you thinking about it, well, that's my goal. Thanks for joining in.